What's up, guys? It's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. We hope you enjoyed listening to Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 99 on Luminary. Now continuing with our 99 theme, I wanted to let you guys know we've got all new episodes of the Rewatchables 1999 starting back up right now. Since we've returned, we have rewatched Eyes Wide Shut and Election, and up next is Never Been Kissed and many more 1999 classics. So make sure to check out the Rewatchables 1999 on Luminary. got our cash mood on tonight. <laughs> it's great. Welcome to Live Talks LA. My name is Larry Wilmore and also to an episode of Black on the Air, my podcast. And I'd like to thank you very much. Um, and let me formally introduce Malcolm for the podcast. I'd like to welcome a man who I'm a huge fan of, lucky enough to know. <laughs> um, he's always fascinating from all of his books. And Revisionist History, if you haven't listened to the podcast, it's so good, you guys. Malcolm Gottwell, welcome to Black on the Air, Malcolm. Thank you. Thank you. Live talk. Thank you for... Uh, I was at your... Um, I was at the Ringer offices, where That's your right. home based this afternoon. I know. And I was talking to Bill Simmons, our kind of patron saint. Yes. And Bill said, well, what's Larry going to talk about? And there was a long pause, and I said, like, I don't know, like... <laughs> It could be all just about the Lakers, for all it I know. Could be. It could be. <laughs> yeah. I know you have a lot of opinions about sports. We can talk about running. You know? You've been challenging like, people to running. And yeah, that I have. Stuff I, I challenged LeBron. And you challenged LeBron to a race. I did, did you not know about this? It was, you have to be in the, in the running world, which is this right. big. Right. Um, <laughs> it was a big deal. Uh, right. I, I, said to Le, I challenged LeBron to a one-mile race. One mile. Yeah. Right. And then... Thereupon, the running community uh, began a fierce debate about who would win. Yeah. I love how people, like, had this fight for you guys. Too, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, 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 no, it was fantastic. Yeah. I, my position was that he would win uh-huh. because even though... Wait, wait, wait. Back up for a second. You challenge him to a race, he's like, you're going to probably win. No. In the, I'm, not, I'm not playing him. Okay. I legitimately think... So there's some... So LeBron is, what, 280? I'm yeah. 125. <laughs> so you're one of his legs, basically. I, no, I have it in running, of course. In this, it's an advantage to be ludicrously skinny as I am. If, especially on distance. Especially on distance. Sprints, you never but know. That right. being said, every now and again, and not infrequently, there are basketball players who are possessed of of extraordinary aerobic engines, uh-huh. and I saw, and all runners did a video that LeBron posted on his Instagram uh-huh. okay. where he just runs, he's running, he's in a gym yes. and he's running back and forth between each end of each basket right. and someone will throw him the ball as he approaches the basket and alley-oop, he dunks it, runs to the other end, dunks it, runs to the other end. It goes on forever. And if you look at it as a runner, you're like, holy mackerel, this yeah. guy can run like a 430 mile. So I saw that and I was like, well, he's going to beat me, but... How great would it be to be destroyed by LeBron? I love that it took that. <laughs> I love that it took that evidence to convince you that. No, no, we need runners need evidence. So there's some. It's LeBron James, though. No, no, no. He's no. a machine. He is a machine. But there are some basketball players who, by virtue of their size, um, would have difficulty running a mile. 
But do you know, right. do you remember a basketball, I don't know why we're on this tangent. No, this is but, great. Yeah. Do, you remember a, do you remember Vernon Maxwell? Of course, absolutely. Of course. Of course. Played for the Rockets. So I met a guy who went, played for, Vernon played for the University of Florida, as I believe. Mm-hmm. And he said they used to do this thing where they would have to show up at like six o'clock in the morning and a coach would make them half a mile. And Vernon would show up hungover in like a pair of jeans and he would run a two minute half mile. Right. And he never did any kind of training. And that, you know, he was not a small dude, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea is, they, and Larry Bird had amazing... <laughs> See, I'm thinking that could have just been a high thing, you know, where... <laughs> <laughs> He's just running, he doesn't know what's going on. No, he was a superb, <laughs> a superb... Anyway, my point is, LeBron, I think, is in the category of very, yeah. very large people who are so aerobically gifted, they can I personally think LeBron just doesn't like to lose. And he's like... Kobe Bryant, you could challenge him to anything. He's going to find a way to win. There's yeah. Some people are just made up like that, which yeah. kind of transcends even the thing that they're oh, good at. Oh, he's not going to lose to me. No, he's not going to I'm lose. also twice his age, let's be clear. Yeah. Um, but I... <laughs> no, I'm clear about that. <laughs> I did not challenge him to the race. <laughs> Every time I meet someone who works for either the Lakers or Nike, yeah. I badger them on this point. Right. Like, what's the matter with it? What's up, LeBron? Why is he ducking me? <laughs> A man... Yes. When it was clear he wasn't going to do it, I was like, all right, let's have our mom's race. I like that. And what did he say? My mom's 89 years old. So there's a similar age differential with his mom. Right. But Joyce is up for it. <laughs> and she's probably a beast, too. She she, probably, she's going to use a walker. She could kick some butt. But like, I think that's that fine. Walker, if you're 89, yeah. you'd like to use the walker. I wouldn't bet against your mom. Man. She has some velocity with the, with the walker. Right? I bet she does. <laughs> All right, let's talk about your excellent book, Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. There you go, guys. came out last week. Get this book. You'll be happy that you did. It's so fascinating on so many different levels, Malcolm. Congratulations. Um, You start by talking about Sandra Bland. Yeah. Um, Sandra Bland was the black woman who was driving in Texas, and uh, she was pulled over. There's this kind of... I almost said kerfuffle. Black people don't have kerfuffles with police. (laughs) Not the right word. I was going to (laughs) say. It kind of underplays what exactly happened. So you've been on the west side of L.A. too long. Yes, exactly. It's like a kerfuffle. Uh, She had a kerfuffle. Karen Riverside. (laughs) Well, what happened, Larry? They just had a kerfuffle. I don't understand. (laughs) I know, I know. This goes back to the the Rodney King kerfuffle. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. You know, people don't understand. That's why they got off. It was just a kerfuffle. Can I say seriously before we start this? I was thinking about this the other day, that the history of of racial relations in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. is defined by a series of encounters between white policemen and black people. So there's a timeline. And what? And riots. Yes. Yes. Well, the end in... But there... So the Watts riots begin when a young black man is stopped by a cop on suspicion of uh, DWI, Mm -hmm. right? And his mom comes and there's a whole confrontation. Then the next big event is um, Eula Love, Mm -hmm. a famous case from the late 60s, where is a black woman who has a confrontation with police Mm -hmm. and they shoot her dead, right? Because they think she's threatening them. Um, Then there is Rodney King, right? Mm -hmm. Which happens sort of... 15 years after that. It's like, it, and I, I, I'm quite sure we could go back in time, yeah. and I'm quite sure the next major 
um, conflagration will be about. It is extraordinary how many times in, in American history this particular kind of encounter mm-hmm. has been the trigger for um, a, and some kind of explosion of, of unhappiness or unrest. It's interesting because you, you obviously didn't find this out recently. You've, you know, you've known this you know, even, even as a Canadian, but of course as a man of the world, and yet the Sandra Bland incident seems like it affected you in a different way. Yeah. That kind of motivated this book. Can you talk about that? Yeah, because it's so unbelievably... I mean, they're all senseless, these things. Mm-hmm. So, we, you know, we had the string. We had... starts with Ferguson, and then we have, you know... And there's like 10 of them, right? Eric Garner. It's amazing how many of those names mm-hmm. still... Um, the Sandra Bland is a little different because... Different. Yeah, for those of you that don't remember, she three days later, I think it was, she was found hung in her jail cell. I'll say found hung because some people don't know if it was suicide or something else. I think it was suicide. Yeah. And it's also different because, unlike, say, Ferguson, where we're still arguing about what happened, Mm -hmm. um, the whole encounter between Sandra Bland and the police officer who stopped her is captured on his dash cam. Right. We have a transcript, and and you can watch the video online, and I've watched it, you know, 50 times. Yeah, we covered it on my show at the time, yeah. the, uh, the night show. I mean, it's so you, you can see just how insanely mm-hmm. senseless and stupid and heartbreaking yeah. this encounter is. And that maybe sets it apart because it's always, for bad reasons, largely, when we get the, when we get the videotape, our, mm-hmm. I'm always puzzled about this, by the way. Like, uh, Ray Rice. We get, right, I know where you're going, yeah. We get told that he hit his girlfriend sure. really hard and dragged her from the elevator. And we're like, okay. <laughs> and then we see the video and we're like, oh my God! What? Right? Mm-hmm. Well, what's the difference? Like, why is it... There was another case with a guy at a... I mean, there's actually numerous cases of this over the last couple of years where we, we somehow can't get energized until we see the video. Donald Sterling. Yeah. So... Everybody knows that Donald Sterling, the owner of the Clippers, was a deeply racist dude. Twice the Department of Justice comes after him for not renting to black people. He's clearly a kind of person who in private, you know, all the players would say over a course of many, many years, the man is despicable in the way he behaves towards us. Mm-hmm. And then we get audio tape from his girlfriend of him behaving in precisely the manner we knew he behaved. Right. And everyone, the league is in an uproar and he gets turfed out of his job. So it's like, I don't really under, I do not understand this, although I understand that I am the exact same way with Sandra Bland. There are, there are, the average number of civilians who are shot every year in America by police is a thousand. Mm. So there are roughly a thousand cases we can get riled up about every year in America. When you say shot, do you, are you saying unjustly shot? No. Or are you so, just saying shot in, let's say, maybe in self-defense? Or are you making a distinction so between... So the universe, it's complicated because there are lots and lots of fatal. Mm-hmm. But it is, I think the criterion is um, in a situation where the civilian is not, is not obviously or directly threatening the... So if I hold up in my house with a shotgun... Mm-hmm. and the cops break in, and I fire, and they fire. That doesn't count. We're okay. talking about situations that should not have ended in, 
it's about a thousand people a year. Mm -hmm. So there are a thousand times we can get upset, but we get most upset about the one case that where we can actually hear the video, see the videotape, right? It's right. a weird thing about us that we require that kind of documentary evidence before. Well, it affects us in a different way. And you talk about this um, deeply into your book on the different points, but there's something about not, maybe it's not wanting to believe the worst in some cases. And in other cases, the Sandra Bland thing is interesting. And when you talk about cops pulling over blacks is interesting because there's the racism part of it is in the mix there sometimes, I think. Sometimes not, you know. But in that, but in this book, Talking to Strangers, you're not really talking about that aspect of it, right? You're, yeah. you're really talking about something else. Yeah. I, actually, this is something that it's worth kind of dwelling on a little bit. I explicitly don't explore the racial dimension right. of this. I, I wanted to point detail. that out. This, you're yeah. not re that's not what you're extrapolating here. And there's yeah. many reasons. One... The principal one, there's two that I want to talk about. The principal one is, I read an essay written um, by a historian, a black historian at Chicago called Charles Payne, which is called The Whole United States is Southern. And it, <laughs> it is one of the most extraordinarily insightful and devastating essays I've ever read, mm -hmm. in which he makes this argument that that was a statement made by George Wallace in, I think, the late, early 70s, he was governor, of course, of Alabama, mm -hmm. famous segregationist. Who later had an epiphany, supposedly, and turned, his, turned around. Yes. Yeah. He later mm -hmm. kind of um, transformed himself yeah, it was kind into, of interesting, a, yeah. into a kind First of... people to forgive him were black people, too. Like, like he was cool with <laughs> yeah. black people. It's a very interesting story. Though. Yeah, it is actually fascinating. Story, yeah. But this is bad George Wallace. Right, this is bad He's just George done Wallace. a series of... Just like, I still hate you black people, George Wallace. Okay. Right. That's right. <laughs> and he has done, I've forgotten what the trigger is. He's done something yeah. totally racist. And he was remarking <laughs> on the fact that he got he all these... He woke up, right, yes. <laughs> that he got all these letters of support from... Uh -huh across America. Mm -hmm. And his, the reason he made that comment is that the great, this is Payne's argument, the great project of, of segregationists, of white segregationists in the 1960s and 50s and 60s in the South was, actually more than that, was to personalize racism, was to say what racism is about is that you and me, Larry, we don't see eye to eye. Mm -hmm. You know, we have hatred in our heart. And if a white person and a black person gets it. Although I'm not, of course, a white person. So in this case, I'm standing in for because I am whiter than you. I I'll stand in for the white person. Yeah. Um, <laughs> am I white? I am whiter than you. Well, you were in Canada for so <laughs> fucking long. You know, how are you supposed to get any darker than you are? Right now? Yeah. It's I have all going to be temporary melanin. Yeah, I know. I have, I have, I have maxed out yeah, on the Canadian scale. Yeah, you can't get scale. permanent melanin at this point. <laughs> You're, you're just borrowing it whenever you get tans. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, what he means is, so back to George Wallace. Yes. Uh, that the great project of the Southern racist was to transform the racial argument into a personal argument. So to forget about institutionalized racism, to forget about voter suppression and, and segregation, all those kinds of things, and to say, you know, it's about you and I need to feel love in our hearts towards one another, right? Mm -hmm. And so long as the argument is framed in personal terms, they win. Mm -hmm. So long as people talk about, when people talk about it in institutional terms, they lose. And Wallace was saying, after he got this sort of outpouring of emotion for something that he said, oh my God, we won. They're, they're thinking about it in 
totally personal terms. It's all about, is the other two people involved in the conversation racists in their heart? Mm-hmm. It's not about the fact that we don't let black people vote, right? And we, what's amazing, this prism of thinking about racism, is that he's totally right. They won, right? So the governor of Virginia wears blackface, and it's like a one-month-long story. Everyone's up in arms, mm-hmm. as if it's somehow surprising that a dude in his 60s who went to UVA in the 1970s wouldn't right. have worn blackface at some point. I mean, it was probably, he probably needed to do that to get in. Right? It was probably like a... I mean, why is this... How is this surprising? Yes, frankly, I'm not that impressed. This kind of some weak racism as far as I'm concerned. It's like... like, You can do better than that. Come on. It's so... It is amateur hour racism. Right. Meanwhile, in exactly the same moment in history, we're coming out of an election where there is clear evidence that both gerrymandering and voter suppression substantially altered the outcome of the 2016 elections. Mm -hmm. That and the... Ralph, whatever his name is, blackface story, are on a par. And George Wallace would say, oh my God, we won. Like, you're really considering blackface along with voter suppression and gerrymandering, right? Mm -hmm. That's what they want. They want it to be elevated. So what I was trying to get away with in that story is, and I felt people were dismissing the story of Sandra Bland and the cop by saying, oh, the cop's a racist. Mm -hmm. And that ended the discussion. And I don't want to end the discussion. I was like, all right, well, Sure, maybe he is, but can we somehow find a way to talk about this that doesn't foreclose some kind of systematic reaction to right. the problem? Yeah, one of the things I've always said that, you know, not all the times people are racist. I think the benefit of the doubt is racist itself. You know, the actual benefit of the doubt, you know, it's the one benefit that white people get in droves, you know, that nobody gets. <laughs> but um, it's that assumption that is made. You talk about this in Blink a little bit, you know, yeah. the assumption that's made from the beginning. And further in your book, when you talk about um, policing, especially in Kansas City, many times police make an assumption based on skin color. I'm not saying they're racist, but there's an assumption that's made that can inform their behavior to a certain extent. Not all cops are like this. I certainly don't want to say that. But in Mm -hmm. the Sandra Bland case, it felt like that was both a... I felt there was some um, female stuff going in there, too. Like, this bitch is talking to me like that. You know, that kind of thing. Like... Like, it seemed like he couldn't believe a woman was talking to him like that. Yeah. That's what it felt like to me. I was getting some of that. Like, how dare she Oh, there's smoke. so many layers to that. There's so many layers, right? You know, she's out-of-state plates. Right. A woman. Black. And I, I keep saying this because I'm a car person. I love cars. She's driving a Hyundai. I'm not saying that trivially. <laughs> now it explains it. Yes. <laughs> No, I mean, I really, I really do think it's part of it. Uh-huh. He's like... You think the Hyundai is part of it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that sounds absurd. It right. sounds absurd. But like, so what are the circumstances under which she does not stop her? Okay? Mm-hmm. So if she's white, mm, way lower chances he stop her. Stops mm-hmm. her, right? Mm-hmm. If she's not 28, but 68. Sure. Way lower chances. Right. And if she's driving a Mercedes, he's in stopper if she's driving a Mercedes. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. So he's like looking at a car and he's saying, oh, it's like not a nice car. It's like a Hyundai. And it's got Chicago plates. Mm-hmm. And there's a young black woman in it. And I don't know, that's like, I'm in small town in rural Texas. And that just seems weird to me, right? And mm-hmm. by the way, as I point out in the book, they are trained to do that. That mm-hmm. is, 
They are trained to look for anomalies. She is anomalous Mm -hmm. in Prairie View, Texas in that moment. She's not fitting the template of a normal motorist. And he has has three triggers. Not in, she's a pickup truck. It's a different story. No Confederate flag. No Confederate. If she was somehow, (laughs) by some extraordinary act of of self-hatred, putting the Confederate flag in the back of the truck, Mm -hmm. yeah, like she she walks, right? She escapes. Mm -hmm. But there's so, he's putting all those kind of pieces together. Um, Uh And then, then, you know, the whole thing unravels. But what's interesting about that is that the problem with the tape, with watching a tape and obsessing over the tape, and I thought about this a lot because I'm someone who obsessed about the tape, is the tape suggests that the interaction fails at the moment that he confronts her for the first time. For the first time, when he's asking for her license and registration. So the tape begins and you see him pull her over and walk up to the passenger sign, lead in and say, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. But of course, it doesn't begin there. It begins before he pulls her over. It begins when he sees her uh, pull out of the street, pull onto the street, and he drives up behind her. And it's really, really important to understand that his complete misunderstanding and the paranoid fantasy that he constructs around Sandra Bland Mm -hmm. does not begin when he actually meets Sandra Bland. It begins before he meets her. Right? That's the thing. That's the crazy thing. He's not even... I mean, the thesis, one of the of this book is that we're really bad at talking to strangers. Why? Because a lot of times we're in a hurry and we use really lousy evidence as a basis for... He's in such a hurry that he has already formed a suspicion about her before he has even laid eyes on her. I mean, he's seen her glancingly as she drives by, and he's like, Chicago plates, black woman. She's got a problem. And, he, and then he manufactures a reason for pulling her over. That's part of what is profoundly creepy about it. And you're saying that affected the entire conversation. Yeah. Okay, now, do you also... I don't remember if you do, but do you also look at it from the other side? Like, what has she made up in her mind about him? Because um, she had, had she been posting things about uh, incidents with police? So She's aware, a politically aware young woman. Right, so there was obviously a narrative playing in her head as well. Right? Yeah. How, how much it, credence do you give to that, like, in this situation? Well, so, uh, on the other side of this argument, there are those who will make a lot out of that, and they'll say, well, you know... If she had just, you know, said, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, sir, Mm -hmm. no, sir, she's alive today. Um, To which I would say several things. One is that she is legitimate. First of all, she's had a series of encounters with the cops before, and she has uh, several thousand dollars in unpaid traffic fines Mm -hmm. from previous police stops. That is part of the reason she has moved from Chicago to Texas is to start her life over because she was deeply in debt. She had... She had psychiatric problems. She had committed, she would attempted suicide. Mm-hmm. She had lost a child. Her life had really been in um, tatters in Chicago, and she wanted a new start. So she comes down to Texas, and then one day into Texas, she gets a new job. She thinks she's turned over a new leaf, and a cop pulls her over. And here's the thing, though, and the reason why I'm not, I don't buy this argument that she's in some way to blame. The cop pulls her over for completely bullshit reasons. Mm-hmm. He, she pulls out of Prairie View University and she's driving down the road. He pulls in behind her 
accelerates up behind her. So what does she do? She gets out of the, as one would do if a cop accelerates behind behind you, right? She gets sure. out of his way, and she doesn't use her turning signal because she's in a hurry to get out of a police car who's driving really quickly. Mm-hmm. And then he stops her and says, "You didn't use your turning signal." He's not like, wrong. <laughs> it's like she's incensed and yeah. legitimately if anyone did that to you and particularly she's someone who was trying to start over after having yeah she had her own things going on she may have been suffering from some kind of depression or something oh, I there, think there ab- was some issues going oh, on I think her. absolutely, absolutely. But, but the trigger is the cop completely manufactures a pretext mm-hmm. for pulling her over and that quite properly irritates her and but it doesn't, if you watch the videotape, it's not like she's screaming at him. Mm-hmm. She's not misbehaving. She is complying. And all she does is light a cigarette. By the way, why do people light a cigarette? To calm their nerves. She's trying to de-escalate. Although that is pretty ballsy to light up a cigarette while the cop's giving you a ticket. I don't know. I, I mean, I that's pretty do not ballsy. Agree. Do not agree. I think. Really? Have you... You think just, oh, you're going to meet a ticket officer? Um, hold on one second. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... In it, fact, let me just finish this blunt while you're talking. <laughs> no, because... No, but it's not that. It is... I am very upset. Right. I would like to calm myself down. And mm-hmm. it's more, you know, nicotine in the day. It, nicotine is an extraordinarily powerful drug with many effects... One of, it, one of its effects is it is an anxiety reducer, a very powerful anxiety sure, reducer. Sure, absolutely. And she is, in her mind, I believe, she's signaling to the police officer, I'm upset, just let me calm she's down. She's trying to calm down, right. She's trying to calm down, and she's trying to, and by calming herself down, trying to de-escalate the situation. And he sees it as an act of defiance, right? Mm-hmm. It's another one of his ludicrous misreadings of the situation. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this, and then I want to move on to some of the other things in here, but just, I find that, Cops generally don't like it when you give them what they call attitude. They just don't. I mean, I, in, cops that I talked to, my father yeah. was in law enforcement. If you give them what they consider attitude, I'm not saying it's attitude, yeah. but what they consider, it just turns them into like, fuck you, motherfucker. This is going to be difficult now. That's yeah. one thing that I definitely I didn't know. I know your dad fact. was a cop. He wasn't a cop. He was a probation officer, but he, he was uh, L.A. County Sheriff's. And my experience is that my father always had a badge. He still has it to his day. Yeah. And when he would, he's got pulled over several times when we were in the car, as soon as he shows the badge, the blue color takes over from the black. Yeah. You know? and, and it was all good. So that was yeah. my experience that, man, that badge is pretty fucking powerful. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's kind of an interesting point of view. But um, in the book, um, you talk a lot about spies. And yeah. how um, I find this stuff very fascinating because um, part of what you cover in the book is um, how we like to, be- I, I don't know, I'm not saying the same thing, but, but we kind of believe the best in people or mm. we want to believe the truth about something. Yeah. And p- people can, it's, hard to, it's harder to tell when people are lying to us than it is when they're telling the truth. Is that fair? Our assumption is that people are always telling us the truth. It's kind of our baseline assumption, assumption. right? But we really, really want to believe that as well, too, right? Yes, yes. Yes. And so it's difficult. So it it takes an awful lot of evidence for us to shift out of what's called truth default mode Mm -hmm. into the belief that you're being deceived. And this is an astonishingly universal observation about Mm -hmm. human behavior. So just by virtue of being someone who is deeply experienced or expert does not... 
that, that expertise and experience does not mean that you are better at knowing when you're being deceived. All of us do it. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I tell a story in the book of the Larry Nasser case at Michigan State. Oh, it's terrible. The, the guy who, who molested the uh, gymnast. The gymnast. Yeah. You know, there were, there were parents who were in the... There's one horrible. story yeah. with a mom who is herself a doctor, is in the room while Nasser is treating her daughter, and he's mm-hmm. got his fingers inside her daughter's vagina, and he has a heart on. And the mom, the doctor, sees that Larry Nasser has an erection. The uh, parent. The parent sees it? Is that what you mean? The parent. The parent, uh-huh. Looks at Larry Nasser, the doctor, and sees that he is sporting an erection while treating her daughter. And she was like, she, she was like I saw it, and I was like, that's kind of weird. Why would he? Right? Now, this is not someone who is a bad parent, an idiot, an inexperienced person. None of those things. She is a deeply caring parent who is a medical doctor who ought to know, but that fundamental desire, human desire to see the best in people overcomes all of her doubts, right? And that's, that happens across the board. It's fascinating because, and you talk about this in different ways, like there, there are two ways to me that this is kind of expressed. There's the liar in that sense, the, the person that is purposely putting out a lie mm-hmm. and, you know, people believe it because liars are actually pretty good, you yeah. know, especially professional liars, as we see one almost every day, right? <laughs> I don't think he's very good at it, though. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's, you know what it is? He's so horrible at lying, he's taken to a meta level of lying. Where, yeah. No, really. It's this, it really is unbelievable. I love that we don't have to say what we're talking about. No, no, no. I'm giving him credit. Yeah. He's the most unbelievable liar I've ever seen in my life, where... The lies take on a different form of truth that he can pass any kind of polygraph. I guarantee you, hook that creature up to a polygraph, pass, pass, pass. <laughs> on anything, on anything. It, he's an amazing machine of, yeah. of untruth. This is <laughs> sort of parenthetical, but when I was doing this book, I had, I did, none of it made it into the book, yes. but I got, became really interested in polygraph. And the, the, the CIA has like, they deeply believe in the polygraph. They use it regularly, right? Oh my God, more than yeah. regularly. They're obsessed with it. They have a whole department of like dozens and dozens of people. And as far as I could tell, everyone who ever retired from the CIA's polygraph division wrote a memoir. That's hilarious. And so I began to collect the memoirs of ex-CIA oh, polygraph wow. experts. And they're all like, weird doesn't quite capture it. It's like, you're doing something that has no scientific basis yeah. for an organization like the CIA and then you retire, and the first thing you do is write a memoir boasting about your, how good you are at this thing that is completely horseshit. Right. So then I thought, well, I'll go and visit them. So I began mm-hmm. to visit them. And they are, you know, they, they're, they, when they tell stories about their triumphs, mm-hmm. their triumph, it's never that I caught the spot. I caught Aldra James before he gave away every secret we ever had. It's never that, mm-hmm. because they don't catch Aldra James. Right. It's always like, there was this guy, and he was like having an affair with his wife. I caught him. Like, <laughs> okay. Like, right. Or like this guy, I mean, he, was, he said that he was straight, but he was gay. Incredible percentage of their wins are that they uncover that someone is gay. Mm-hmm. Like, first of all, it's 2019. I don't understand like why... What's the win here? How, 
Was this difficult? You're when I want to find out whether someone is gay, generally I just ask them, are you gay? Yeah, th- that would be the best. I don't have to hook them up to some machine. Right. But they're, you know, so they're, they have lowered or the bar. Or you can ask them out. That'd be the other <laughs> way, right. too, right? <laughs> <I'm worried>. <laughs> <laughs> if you lower the bar far enough, uh-huh. everything's a win, right? <laughs> That's essentially what they're Once doing. Again, yes. <laughs> but I would, I would go, I visited more than one of them, and I was just so... Kind of, and they were all sort of perversely proud of their record. And then they would always have some story about how, yeah, I told those fools on the <laughs> Eastern European desk not to trust so and so. It's like, you know, like. After the fact. It's all, yeah, so just not. Anyway, I don't know why I was going around that. None of it made the book because I was yes. like, why would I? Right. Why do you think um, the people who are most responsible, like people in the CIA, mm-hmm. who are you know, the people who are supposedly the experts at subterfuge are the people who probably get fooled the most. I mean, they fall hard. Like you talk about, it took years to just figure out who double agents are. Like, why is it so hard to figure out who a double agent is? From an organization whose job it is... To figure out double agents. Exactly. That's what I mean. So, yeah, so the book begins with the story. I don't want to ruin it, but I tell this Mm -hmm. unbelievable story about... Cubans and yes. Cubans, the Cubans, how the Cubans well, tease it a little bit, but it's a really fascinating. A story. guy who's yeah. high up in Cuban intelligence shows up in 1987, present, defects, presents himself at the American Embassy in Vienna, and says, "I have a story to tell." Mm-hmm. And he insists on he insists that the former CIA station chief in Havana be present when he tells the story. And this is a very famous spy called the Mountain Climber who I spent about a year and a half trying to find and finally found. Uh He's like the greatest CIA operative of his generation. And and what year did this happen? 87. Okay, right. Late. the mountain climber is now retired. I can't use his real name. He's a legend. Mountain climber. His nickname was the mountain climber, El Alpinista. The, Uh The KGB would teach courses on El Alpinista to their recruits because he was like... He was like the real deal. And I found, I found it was actually kind of great. So I spent like so much time trying to find him because I was like, I got to hear this story because I was told every time I would try and ask some CI person, tell me the story about what happened when this dude defected. They go, you got to talk to the mountain climber. <laughs> so I was like, I, you know, like, what do you do when someone says you got to talk to the mountain climber? Right. Like, got to find the mountain climber. You can't Google mountain climber. Right. But I, so I, I in fact found him. I was so pleased with this because I'm a, actually quite a bad reporter. And I, the fact that I found him was like, Heroic on my part. How and I, you, <laughs> and can I you share how he found him, or is that like a secret information how you found him? Can't tell you. Okay, all right. But one day, I look at my, wake up, and there's a voicemail. And I listen to the voicemail. Literally, it is, Mr. Gladwell, I hear you're looking for me. <laughs> it's the mountain climber. I was like, oh my God! <laughs> Uh, it would have been great had you not been home and it's on your voicemail. Uh, hello, this is, uh, this is the mountain climber. Uh, <laughs> you were looking El, for me? El Alpinista. Um, anyway, the mountain climber tells this kind of epic story, and you realize that even mountain climber, the greatest operative of his generation, uh-huh. even he can be fooled. And this is always, all spy stories are the same, which is the spy is not James Bond. They're kind of lame. And they start to spy. Right. And, you know, five years in, someone suspects them. Mm-hmm. And they get past their cl- fine colors. And then 10 years in, even though they're like 
Ultra James, you know, the worst spy of his generation, mm-hmm. did everything possible to be caught. He, he was like drunk all the time. Mm-hmm. Soviets start paying him large amounts of cash, which he starts to spend, mm-hmm. even though he's like GS7. You know what right. I mean? Like he's showing up at Langley in like a brand new, you know, XJ12 Jaguar. <laughs> like, and everyone's like, you know, hey, everybody, what's going on? <laughs> and then, like, there's a, my favorite thing is they all make a big deal about how he capped his teeth. So you get the sense that, like, the CIA is a place where no one, nobody caps, no one caps their teeth here at the, yeah. at the agency. And all of a sudden, like, Audrey James, like, shows up in the XJ12 and, like, gets out and, like, his teeth are gleaming white. <laughs> like, you would think this is, like... And no suspicion. No suspicion. Right. None. He He's just caught, crazy. He's just crazy, crazy mm. Aldrich. He marries, like, a woman who, like, has ties to, you know... But it's just like... Or even... I read this. It's not in the book, but I read this book recently over the holidays about Klaus Fuchs, mm-hmm. who's the spy who gives away all the atomic secrets to the Soviets in the 40s. Mm-hmm. Arguably the most, dam- the, the most damaging spy of the 20th century. And Klaus Fuchs is at uh, Los Alamos because he's one of the top nuclear physicists in the world. And he has to get all of the... So everything he's learning. So they're inventing the nuclear bomb. And Klaus is central. It's like Oppenheimer, Klaus. Like. Mm-hmm. And Klaus is working for the Soviets the whole time. So he has to get the stuff to the Soviets. Now, so Los Alamos is like 20,000 people there. But it's on lockdown. You can't leave Los Alamos for obvious reasons because you're, you're... It's the biggest secret in the world, right? Mm-hmm. We're trying to make an atomic bomb. So you, you can't... So it's like... Big fence around. To get out of it, it's harder than to get out of God knows what. Mm-hmm. Klaus is like constantly leaving for like unexplained. <laughs> They're like, where's Klaus? I don't know where Klaus, Klaus I don't know where he's gone. He's like gone <laughs> out of the desert somewhere. Like nobody, it's just this incredible thing. It's like. His pants want- are real puffy. I don't know what's <laughs> like, going on there. Maybe he's gaining weight. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and they're so far, at the end, Klaus gets caught and he ends up in East Germany. And the British are, he's British. They're really bummed that they lost him. This is just how weird and surreal the world of spies is. Like, so the guy, the whole time that he's figuring out how to make an atomic bomb, he's giving everything to the, the Russians. Sure. We know this about him. We then loot, the Brits then have to give him up, and he goes to East Germany, lives out his days. Uh-huh. And their first thought is, oh, such a shame to have lost Klaus. Because their whole position is, all right, I know he gave everything to the Russians, but we can't make a bomb without him. <laughs> I can't even... I don't have the time or the energy to unpack the logic behind that right. particular... It's unbelievable how people compartmentalize their common sense. You know, yeah. common sense gets compartmentalized. So the biggest example in this book, and this is an area that I've been interested in for a long time too, is... How does Neville Chamberlain, at the dawn of the Second World War, think, yeah, I think I believe that Hitler guy. How does he look Hitler in the eye and come, he, you know, comes away several times, not just once, with complete faith in him. I mean, not complete faith, but he presents it that way. Because, you know, people were, you know, we're very scared about the prospect of war at that time. You know, Hitler had already done a couple of things. How does that happen? How does that phenomenon happen? Well, not only that, Hitler has written like 
hundred-page manifesto, yeah. detailing in yes. bullet point form exactly. exactly what he wants to do. It couldn't be clear. He's already written. He's ha- he has the agenda, and you, you know, it's like he's kind of spelled it all out. All you have to do is read the book. Yes, yes, exactly. And Chamberlain decides no action on flight in Munich, and every part of the flight to I don't know he knew, he'd never been in an airplane before. Neville Chamberlain, and he flies to really? Munich, mm. and half of the whole story is like. The Brits celebrating him for his bravery, mm-hmm. flying to Munich from London, and he like meets Hitler. Lindbergh or something. Or? There's some, you know, he flies from some aerodrome. Is that what uh-huh. they call it back then? Um, yeah. Oh, who, where is Neville Chamberlain from? No, he, no, no, no. Oh, no. he's at like. Oh, he's a shopkeeper from Manchester. Right. Um, and he uh, he has this notion. By the way, not dissimilar to George Bush looking. George Putin in the eye and saying, I have seen this man's soul. I've seen his soul. I've looked in it. That's really good. Mm -hmm. I think he was eating some eggs and sausage. And I figured he must be regular. He's a good guy. One of us. (laughs) Um, Why is George Bush... (laughs) George Bush got a pass... He got a a pass from history that I will never understand. Do you think he got a pass? Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay, I don't think he got a pass. He got a pass. When did he, he start, get a pass? He starts a war for a completely fictionalized reason, mm-hmm. which results in hundreds of thousands of people dying and an entire generation of war vets coming home damaged for the rest of their lives, and you can see them on the streets. Mm-hmm. Why are they on the streets? Because George Bush started a war for no reason, mm-hmm. right? And then not to mention the devastation that is left over in Iraq because we started a war for no reason. Mm-hmm. Right? And somehow this doesn't matter. We're obsessing about Trump's tweets. When there's a guy in Texas... You know who's against that war? Your boy Trump. I don't think Trump is nearly as egregious as George Bush. I don't think it's even close. Really? Yeah, I think Trump, Bush is in a... cat. He started a war mm-hmm. on the basis of a lie, a complete falsehood. Okay. Right, which he told to the American people that had nothing to do with 9-11, which devastated tens of thousands of lives, cost a trillion dollars, and left a generation of American soldiers devastated and wounded. And somehow he's perceived as this genial guy down in Texas, like painting pictures and giving speeches for... This is like, where, what is the matter with this? There is nothing Donald Trump has done that even comes close to the human devastation of George Bush's time. Not, not even close. Not even close. Right. I mean, he's, Trump is a deeply objectionable figure, mm-hmm. but he has not resulted in the deaths of tens of thousands of people for no reason. Right. Right? George, George Bush is a... I don't know why I'm on this. I feel very sure He's a war criminal. Mm-hmm. He's a classic example of a... That is what a war criminal is. Someone who enters into a disastrous conflict mm-hmm. for no good reason, right? For the, not worse than no good reason, for a completely trumped up, ridiculous reason. Well, the entire government was complicit in that as well. Yeah. 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 Anyway, I don't know. That's, that's another side thing. But it's like we... I think I know an, what your next book is. <laughs> as a non-American, I have to say, I, I, I am... The, the choice of things that Americans mm-hmm. get riled up about has always amazed me. Mm-hmm. You're like, this guy is like, you're fine with that guy. Yes. He's considered to be the voice of reason. Um, <laughs> well, um, sorry. 
No, no, no. I was, I was just asking about a Hitler, and you know, Hitler takes it all kinds of things. You know, so. uh. <laughs> I read this great book on when I was doing that thing on Hitler <clears throat> by Hitler's PR. No, guy. but I love that you didn't get as mad about Hitler as you did about George Bush. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Oh, I'm plenty mad about Hitler. Yeah, you were. <laughs> I mean, you and going to get started on Hitler. About Hitler. <laughs> oh, that Hitler. Yeah. I'm going to do a revisionist history episode next season on Hitler's PR guy. And I'm not going to tell you the story, which is because it will ruin the episode. His PR guy. He's a PR guy. You mean like Lenny Riefenstahl or, you know. Way worse. All I'm only going to say this about his PR guy. Mm-hmm. Ready? Went to Harvard. Really? My antipathy towards Harvard is well known. And this is just... Now, icing on the cake. This is a ridiculous you connection you're making Did you right go to now. Harvard, they, No, I didn't go to Harvard. Where no. did you go? I went to Cal Poly Pomona. I'm a local nice. boy. Nice. <laughs> local boy. It's a theater major. I, yeah. I don't know why I had you for Wait, one of those fancy guys. No, I'm not this Harvard elitist. Yeah. I did do PR for Hitler's uh, grandson. I feel really bad about that. I probably shouldn't have done it. But he seems to have cleaned up the family name is all I can say. You know? uh, <laughs> no, I was, uh, uh, Cal Poly was an agricultural engineering school, which explains why I was a theater major there. So yes, that's right. That's why I was cool. Cal Poly, man. Um, that's, that's called the path of least resistance. You see, very fine school out here, by the way, I just want to say. Um, Anyhow, yeah. you're making your point about Harvard, your hatred for Harvard. Because, well, I mean, when yeah. Hitler's PR guy. Right. Anyway, the story I'm going to tell in my podcast yes. episode on this, which is yet to come, mm-hmm. I can't tell you because you won't listen to the episode. Mm-hmm. But let me just say there is a shocking Harvard-related twist to this story. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm always waiting for a Harvard-related <laughs> twist with bated breath. I want you to know. It's what I live for. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's one thing. Oh, you know what I want to talk about in your book? Uh, when you get to the, you come back to the Sandra Bland at the end, and there's a lot of points that you make. You have friends in this book, which is real fascinating. It's, I still don't know why Friends, why the show Friends is in this book. I have no idea if you want to talk about it. But it's you got to mix it up. It's fascinating read. you got to look at it. But there is an issue in here that kind of goes outside of this a little bit, but you bring it back in, and it's called Coupling. Yes. This term, I haven't quite heard this term before, and it's this, it's kind of a phenomenon how um, things can be related, you know, the way that they occur together, I guess, and you, you use suicides as a way to demonstrate it, right? Mm-hmm. But um, why, why is coupling such a powerful thing in the observation of how, of how we treat people? So coupling is this idea <clears throat> which um, begins really with, is developed very fully by a uh, a generation, a, 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 a very recent generation of criminologists who begin to understand that what crime is is not the actions of an individual, mm-hmm. but rather what crime is is an actions of an individual coupled with a context, with a place. Okay. So a good way to illustrate this is, is, <clears throat> excuse me, is if you were LAPD chief and you were interested in lowering the crime rate in LA County, mm-hmm. I could give you a choice of two sources of information. I would get rid of all Hyundais first. Yes. <laughs> yes. Just I saying. Can, I can either give you the names of every person who committed a crime in L.A. County over the previous year. Okay. Or I can give you the addresses 
of every crime that was committed in LA County the previous year. Which do you think is more useful? To stopping crime? Mm -hmm. um, ooh, sounds like a trick question. Um, well, the answer is awesome. Probably the address is yes. because you get an idea of where crime is occurring. Exactly. Right. So this is the great insight of the coupleist that, yeah, that the places that crime occurs are more useful in understanding crime than the criminals themselves. So okay. a criminal is not someone who commits a crime out of context. They commit a crime in coupled to a very, very, very specific place. And when you do maps of crimes in cities, this is a great mm -hmm. insight, you find that uh, as a general rule, more than 50% of the crime in any urban area occurs on less than 5% of the street segments, in other words, the blocks, mm -hmm. which is an extraordinary fact. So I did a, when I was doing the book, I did a tour of Baltimore, the, mm -hmm. America's most dangerous city, with a criminologist who was trying to make this point to me. She was like, okay, we're now driving in West Baltimore, you know, where the wire is from. Incredibly dangerous neighborhood. Sure. Most streets in West Baltimore have almost no crime. So even in one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in America, the crime is concentrated in a very, very, very small number of mm -hmm. street segments, of one-block segments. Even when the assumption might be that it's kind of yeah. spread out. So, you know? And when mm -hmm. cops have the assumption that crime is everywhere, they behave, that's my, the argument I'm sort of building mm -hmm. is, that they feel they have the right and the obligation to employ aggressive police tactics everywhere. Mm -hmm. But when they realize that in fact crime is something that is incredibly specific to very particular places, then you realize, oh no, the tactics that are um, appropriate on 95% of the street segments are not appropriate on the 5% where all the crime is, and vice versa. You can't police an entire city the same way. Mm -hmm. And that's, to me, that is the most important lesson about Sandra Bland case, which is, as I, you know, when I went, I remember going to one of the guys who's made this argument, a guy named um, uh, Larry Sherman, brilliant criminologist who's mm -hmm. been in the forefront of this movement. And we were walking through the Sandra Bland case, and the first thing he says is, what on earth is the cop stopping her at two o'clock in the afternoon? What he meant was, crimes do not occur at two o'clock in the afternoon, right? If you understand what criminality looks like, crimes occur in very specific neighborhoods, generally speaking, between the hours of X and Y at night, you know. Sometimes you, you have to make an appointment, yeah. <laughs> he was just like, so to do that is to court disaster. You are setting yourself up for pulling over an innocent person and making um, a grave, a false positive error, right? Of alienating someone for no good reason, who is not likely to be engaged in any kind of criminal activity. You have to, if you want to use aggressive police tactics, you have to use them incredibly sparingly and intelligently. And they're not doing that. Can you define aggressive police tactics? You have a, I think in your book, the way you talk about it, there was the Kansas City experiment or yeah. whatever. And by aggressive, it means they would just pull people over on the slightest of whim. But the idea was to try to get guns off the streets. Yeah. That was the initial way that they were doing it, right? Which is kind of interesting to me because I don't remember like when this was happening, like the NRA, <laughs> like crying that black people's guns were being taken away <laughs> or, or that type of thing. I don't recall that they at were, all. They were, no, I don't remember them getting up in arms about that yeah. particular thing. People are happy when black people get their guns taken away. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, black people's guns don't kill people. What, how would the NRA and Come on, that? that's <laughs> How would they finish that sentence? Black um, people do. Mm. No, the idea is that, so 
when you look at, it's kind of fascinating, this idea, it's called the law of criminal concentration, and this idea that crime happens overwhelmingly year after year on the same very specific narrow set of streets. Mm-hmm. So it would, in a place like Baltimore, there might be a street segment, and a street segment is not an entire block. It is half of a block. It's just one side of the street between two streets, right? Mm-hmm. So there are street segments in Baltimore that might have 200 police calls in a, in a year. That's crazy. Right? right? So their argument is if you happen to live on that street segment, you are totally fine with cops being there all the time, pulling people over all the time. Sure. Because... You don't have a problem with that, right? That, you aggressive, are living, that aggressive policing is good. You are terrified right. of going out. You can't step out of your door. Mm-hmm. You're living in Lebanon. It's like a nightmare. You want the cops there. Mm-hmm. If you live on a street segment, and most street segments in cities have almost no... Like one or two police calls a year. Mm-hmm. If you live there, you don't want the cops here all the time. All, they, all they're doing is harassing you, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a big difference between the attitude towards policing in those specific areas that are crime-ridden and in those vast majority of areas that are not. Mm-hmm. And so these guys, this guy named David Weisberg, who's the kind of genius of this, and Barry Sherman, their argument is you don't have a credibility problem for law enforcement when you mm-hmm. limit yourself to the areas where crime is. You have a credibility problem when you start to get lazy and injudicious and use these tactics in places where they don't, where they aren't appropriate. That is, to my mind, the real lesson of Sandra Bland. What's he doing stopping? Leave aside what happens after he stops her. That's all secondary stuff. The real issue is why is he stopping her, right? What are you doing? There is almost no chance she is up to no good. Wow. (laughs) Um, One of the things I wanted to um, ask you about as well is uh, um, now you're presenting your books in a whole new way. Like you do an audio version, really producing that. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. It sounds amazing. So we did what we call an enhanced audio book of this, which is if you listen to the audio book, it's produced like a podcast. So I did, when I was reporting this, I made sure that I got high quality tape on everyone I was interviewing. Uh And then... So when we did the audiobook, for the first thing we did was, I don't, you know, normally you just read everything. When sure. I come to someone that I'm quoting, you hear them. Yes. And when, you, when I describe Sandra Bland at the beginning, you hear actual Sandra Bland. And when, at the very end, when I come back to the police officer and he's giving his deposition on his side of the story, you hear it in his voice. Mm-hmm. And then we went to Janelle Monáe. Janelle Monáe wrote this, sang this incredible song about police shootings called wow. Hell Me Talking About. And we went to Janelle Monáe and we said... Can we use the song? And uh-huh. She's like, absolutely. So we, the song has got this incredibly powerful song that, and we have it scored by this group. In we spent six months and a couple hundred thousand dollars. That's crazy. That... Making this, and it's a. I will say this: it's a better book in audio. It's a totally different book. It's in a audio. whole different experience. Completely though. different experience, and it's a. It's way more powerful uh-huh. once you hear because Sandra Bland did this. She had a YouTube channel, mm-hmm. and she did all of these, you can find them online. She used to post these kind of like little kind of essays online. Um, like video essays? Video essays. Mm-hmm. And she would always begin, hello, my beautiful kings and queens. And there, you realize when you listen to them that what a kind of, um, she was a really kind of beautiful human being. She mm-hmm. had... She was not someone who was... This is why I get so upset at people who suggest she was in some way culpable. She really affected you, these uh, 
these tapes and just listen. She to did. Her. When you listen mm-hmm. to them, you realize she. This is a woman who had an extraordinary amount of love and kindness in her heart. Mm-hmm. She is one talking about really squarely about race when she talks about how the solution to all of these. She's very. This is in the middle of that series of high-profile police shootings, and she's very much caught up in this. And she has this one YouTube essay where she talks about how the solution is not for black people to hate white people. That's just does not. Mm-hmm. She talks about her own experience in a, in a racially mixed high school, and it's incredibly affecting. And you realize this is an intelligent, thoughtful young woman. She's not this... She's not out. She's not like turning to the cop and going like this. That's sure. not her, uh-huh. right? She's a very different kind of person. That's why this, this thing is one of the many, many reasons this thing is so heartbreaking. Yeah. That she's actually someone who wanted to bring some degree of civility and um, uh, wisdom yeah. to this conversation. It really is amazing. One of the things that even hearing you speak about it now... Um, I'm really struck by the level of emotion that you have about her in that case. And, you know, to bookend her story with this, it's different. That's the way that this is different from other things you've read, the other things you've written. From my point of view, like you, you present a thesis to us and you develop that thesis over the course of a book. This is a little different. You're presenting a problem that I think, almost an emotional problem you had, something you're trying to work out. And the book is almost you working that out, you know, and then, is is that, is that accurate? I think that, I think that, I think that is. It has a different level of emotion because of that. I'm fascinated to hear that audio book though. That sounds like, when you hear we get to experience almost the feelings that you're having about this, right? And when you, and all of these stories, like there's a story of uh, where I sit down with the guy who did all of the waterboarding for the CIA. Mm -hmm. And because I, torture is the ultimate talking to strangers, Right. <laughs> yeah. I, yes, I suppose so. You sit down with an Al Qaeda guy, yes, and you are required to figure out what he's, yeah, what secrets he has, and he doesn't want to give them to you, and you have to find out who he is and what he knows, right? And so, one the solution they had, I say they, I have to stop myself because this was someone acting at the behest of the United States government. Mm-hmm. It's really, and it, one of the issues I have with people's relationship to, uh, to questionable or evil deeds done by the government is they use, they try and distance themselves from it. Mm-hmm. It is really, this is a guy, we sat down with Al-Qaeda and we attempted to use um, coercive measures to find out what they were thinking, mm-hmm. right? And we decided that sleep deprivation and waterboarding and walling was an appropriate way to um, do that, and mm-hmm. we have got to live with the consequences. And by the way, if the same situation were to come up now, we would be doing that again. If you don't think, if you think that this administration would be somehow more squeamish about using coercive interrogation than George Bush's administration was, you're crazy, right? Um, that I don't know, because this is where Trump is so unpredictable. Like he's like, goes, "Oh no, don't do that." Like he has these weird reactions to things, you know. He really does. He, I believe he's unpredictable in that realm. Yeah. He might surprise you and be against torture. I, honestly, I have no idea. He has but, said he's in favor, but that means nothing. Cause it, but he's so unpredictable. You know, he might be squeamish one day about it. I mean, who knows? So, yeah. Like, in other words, I don't believe he has an ideology. I believe he has a how he's feeling that day ology. Yes. Yes. No, I, think that, I think that is, right. that is... If the KFC is working hard against him that day... <laughs> yeah. 
then I can see him coming out of it. For a guy who's got like a kind of cleanliness fetish, he eats an awful lot of fast food. That's all I can say. <laughs> yes. But actually, it's interesting about Trump. And, you know, I rarely give him credit because, you know, it's just too much fun to be against him. But, um, but he seems to have a, a soft spot in the criminal justice area, you know. And maybe it's because of people who have been coming to him about it or that type of thing. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But, yeah. but um, he has that hawkish defend the country thing about him, but he, there's this other area that is kind of interesting, too. Well, so, if you've broken anyway. as many laws as he has, right. you're going to have an antagonistic attitude. Exactly. Criminals should go free. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. No, what, wait, wait, no, no, I was going to say sense. that in the audio book, it's one thing when you, in the physical book, when you read about this CIA guy, mm-hmm. but when, but that whole chapter, or yeah. half of it, is told in his voice in the audio book. It's just, I, I back out entirely. It's just long stretches. Mountain climber? Not the Mount Glamour. Oh, okay. No, this is a CIA guy who did the... Mm-hmm. You, he, he, you will hear him in his own voice describing <laughs> right. what it's like to waterboard someone. I was going to think if mountain climbers are there, he didn't know. Mountain <laughs> in the corner. You have me in your book? What? <laughs> he tells the CIA interrogator guy, torture guy, tells a story, which is admittedly is kind uh-huh. of funny, which is he is his buddy, and they want to figure out whether they want to waterboard people. But they're from, um, so there's two dueling, they're from seer schools. And seer schools are the schools where you go, you're like a Navy SEAL, and you, you, they torture you and they do all this stuff to, right. so, to prepare you for if, you, if you're captured. Mm-hmm. So he goes there, and for example, he, he goes to the Air Force one. And the Air Force one and the Navy one have very different ideas about how to torture people. Okay. So he goes to the one, he tells us, I was like, what was it like? He was like, yeah, well, for example, one time they came in the middle of the night and, you know, they try to make it as real as possible. They came in the middle of the night and they dragged me out of bed and they put me in a hole in the ground, Mm -hmm. naked, and then they put a metal plate over the hole and then they inserted a water hose and they filled the hole with water and... Water got higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. And what I didn't know is that right behind my head, there was a exhaust, a, a, a drain pipe. So the water couldn't go any higher than my nose. But I didn't know that. I only knew it was getting higher and higher and higher. And all I could think of was, maybe they won't kill me, but I don't know, maybe they will. So it was a moment when he began to seriously question whether he was going to survive. Anyway, that's the kind of stuff they do to each other. Mm-hmm. And he gets very, but they didn't, the, Air Force guys don't believe in waterboarding because they think it works so well. Why would you, if you train Air Force people on waterboarding, they're going to give up. And the point of the training is that you don't give up. So you don't want to do the thing that so humiliates them that they'll think once they're captured, it's pointless. Mm-hmm. Right? The Navy guys think, no, 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 it's really useful to show you the full range of bad things. So... Which, by the way, you could spend a lot of time just kind of unpacking the significance of this distinction between the yeah. philosophies of the Navy and the Air Force. But anyway, so he's Air Force, and he isn't done waterboarding, and he calls the Navy guys and says, is it going to work against Al-Qaeda? And they go, oh, totally. So he's at the black site, and he and his buddy decide that what they'll do is they'll try waterboarding on each other to see how mm-hmm. bad it is. And so they try it on each other, and they're like, oh, it's bad. <laughs> and then, so then they call Washington, and they say, we want to do this thing called waterboarding. And the Justice Department has to okay it. So they're like, well, what's that? And they try to explain it. Like, no, no, let's send some attorneys down 
to the black site to figure out what it is. So he's like, one day, this guy, by the way, his name is James Mitchell, an enormously charming. You'll see if you listen to the audiobook, you yeah. kind of your interest. So he says, what happens? So one day they're at the black site, like in Poland or wherever the hell it is. And two, attorney, two young DOJ attorneys show up from Washington. Yeah. And, you, you know, a woman and a man. And you can imagine the woman in, like, the, you know, the big bow tie and the, and the guy in, like, his Brooks Brothers suit. Uh-huh. And they're just, like, they're probably three years out of law school. They show up in Poland, and they're, James Mitchell's like, all right, look, we're going to waterboard you. <laughs> so they strap them to the gurney, and they waterboard them. And I, he's like, and then, yeah, we did it. And then I said, well, what did they, what did the, they say when they uh-huh. got out of the... And he said, uh, the woman turned to him and said, man, that sucked. <laughs> that was, that's, uh, that's why they, and so that's why we had waterboarding. Malcolm Gladwell breaks down waterboarding, you guys. Come on, give it up. But. Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. Um, well, let's go to some questions. You want to take some questions yeah. from the audience? Uh, see some people. Ted is going to announce them. All right, we, we have time for a few questions. Uh, Malcolm, um, if you had 10,000 hours to dedicate to a new craft, <laughs> what would you choose and why? 10,000 hours. To a new craft? Uh, I don't know. I guess I, I read so many thrillers. I'd maybe want to reinvent myself as a fiction writer. Is that So you boring? would still want to write? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but maybe I should do something more adventurous. Maybe I'd, you know... But no, I think maybe I'd want to write... I have ideas for thrillers that I've never pursued because I think it's really hard to master writing dialogue. You could take 10,000 hours to figure out how to beat LeBron in a race. <laughs> you know, to... Trust me, I've said Is that 10,000 hours? Is that bullshit? Or... I mean, is that... Well, it's... That's Freak, bullshit, right? Frequently when you write something... I mean, now you look back, you go, I can't believe they bought that shit, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, so, one of the things that happens... 10,000. ...when you write a book... Yes. ...is that people are overly enthusiastic in their interpretation of some right. of your ideas. Yes. So I presented 10,000 hours in a very narrow sense. I was talking about, you know, computer programming, mm-hmm. chess... Right. ...like serious cognitive tasks... But people were like, oh, this applies to, you know, playing power forward in the NBA. No, it doesn't. Right. It doesn't apply to anything. It applies to, like, being a computer programmer, a world-class computer programmer, mm-hmm. and playing and being in the Beatles. But it doesn't apply to, like... So, so I will... It doesn't... The, the notion of 10,000 hours, as was popularly explained, had nothing Got to do it. with me. And there were articles written in which they would talk about my theory. Yes, right. Not my theory, A. Right. And B, to the extent that it is my theory, what you're describing bears nothing has no, nothing in common with. I understand. Okay, it's bullshit. All right. <laughs> Malcolm, uh, you've, been, you've been very critical of um, philanthropy in higher education. Yeah. Yes, um, that's true, yes. What is wrong about it, and how might it be different or better? Oh, my God, where to start? You did a whole pod episode on this, uh, I believe, right? Endlessly thought about this. Yeah. Well, it's so kind of basic common sense. You have two choices. You can give money to schools that need money, mm-hmm. or you can give money to schools that don't need money. Right. My advice <laughs> right, right. <laughs> is give money to schools that need money. Yes. Why? I agree. Why? Because they need money. Yeah. Right? 
And I, every time I meet someone who's just given like, you know, million dollars to Harvard. Yeah. I say, you know, you could, first of all, are you, are you walking into a Louis Vuitton store and giving them money too? Because that's essentially right. the same thing, right? <laughs> Do you feel like it needs a little sprucing up around the edges? Would you like to open a division of the Louis Vuitton store with your name on it? Like the Larry Wilmore school of, you know, handbags. Wait, are you dressing me down? Like yeah. I'm giving it to her? You probably have some, and you know, it always is that... Cal Poly doesn't ask me for money. No. No. They, ex- they accept the fact that this is the best it's going to get. <laughs> Why not? You're loaded. No, they, I'm not loaded. You're the, these books sell like hotcakes, baby. Um, um, I actually had a conversation. I figured this out once. That So I would encourage any of you who would like to, mm-hmm. to read the financial statements of Princeton University. And what's fascinating about them is Princeton University has so... You have an endowment. And what you do if you're a university is you do a draw from the endowment every year. Right. And you typically might draw... You might take 5% of the endowment out every year. And if you make 7%, then you keep the extra two in there and the endowment mm-hmm. slightly grows. Um, or if times are hard, you'll draw... 10% and your endowment will dip a little and you'll try and raise some more. Sure. Princeton has so much money in its endowment that it tries as hard as it can to take the maximum amount and still that number is such a tiny fraction of the whole that every year, regardless of what Princeton does, their endowment gets bigger. So there's no scenario mm-hmm. in which they don't make more money in a given year. They have like, the school is tiny. They've already spent all the money on, like they have running out of things to spend. If you walked around Princeton, they're... Mm-hmm. They're literally at their wits' end yeah. about what to spend money on, right? And so, and the, so the endowment, regard, if they rose, if they raised zero dollars next year, and took the maximum amount out of their endowment, the endowment would still grow. Okay, that's their financial situation. Mm-hmm. Right? Do they still raise money? Absolutely. So, at which point? At what point do you say, "Well, what, I don't understand what's the money yeah, being it doesn't raised?" Doesn't make sense. Yeah. And so I sat down next to a woman who managed their endowment, and I said, oh, "That's really interesting that you mm-hmm. manage your endowment." And I said, "I read the financial statements, and my understanding of them is that you guys could fall asleep for the next fifty years, and your endowment would double." <laughs> yeah, that's is that, true. Have you ever thought about doing more productive work? Mm-hmm. Um, and. And she was like, that's not true. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, I think it's true. And we had a kind of argument at the dinner I party. love these little snits that you get in with I get in people. snits. I think it's awesome. I get, in, I get in snits. I like to pick a fight. Yeah. And, um, and then she emailed me the next day and said, I actually checked and you're right. Yeah. All right. Do you think some of these, uh, to uh, go off of this question... Do you think, you know, a lot of politicians are talking about free college and all that kind of stuff, but they always, you know, the idea is for the government to pay for it. But it seems to me there's a lot of private institutions that could just be giving college away for free right now. Do you think we'll see some of that maybe? I don't, I don't think the issue is... I, that's not the fix. Mm-hmm. So I'm now... It's not the overall fix. But, no, I'm now... Right. I really, really, really do think that the wealthier... So if you think about it... Uh, the Ivy League institutions plus Stanford have a combined endowment of $140 billion. Billion? Yeah, $140 billion, and they That's educate 100,000 students. Yeah. Um, so at a certain point, I think those institutions have the obligation. Since they are really good at fundraising, mm-hmm. <laughs> they should just fundraise for everybody else. Yeah. Right? Like, I don't see... Why is it... 
if you give a million dollars to Harvard, why can't Harvard say the best use of your money is for someone other than Harvard? Why can't Harvard go to you and say, you know, Mr. Schwartzman, mm-hmm. your hundred million would do a lot of good at a community college in our, in our community. And we'd like, like that, I don't understand why that, that argument is, people always roll their eyes, but that argument, I'm sorry, is not impossible. If yeah. the president of Harvard said to their number one donor, thank you, I really appreciate your generosity. I would like to make the best use of this money I can. And I, am, I, I have to tell you the best use is not on this campus. I don't think the people would, you know. I once found, and it never happened, but I, I learned that there was a guy who had someone, who, a friend of, not a friend, someone I knew mm-hmm. was on the Harvard board. Mm-hmm. Told me there was a guy, a really rich guy. I love guy. how you just distance yourself from him. No, 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 but I don't want to give any, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to like get into, get into sure. that. Mm-hmm. I learned there was a guy on the Harvard board who was really rich, who mm-hmm. really wanted to give like hundreds of millions of dollars to de-renovate the Harvard football stadium. In other words, they had the football stadium, which was like a classic, traditional, blah, blah. They renovated it to make it look modern. Mm-hmm. And this guy was like, you know what? I'd like to take it back to... Before it's like, nah, I don't like that. Mm. That's amazing. It's Such a waste. It's uh, fantastic. Largest. Okay, what else? And our final question for the oh, evening. Final question. Final question. Of all the interviews you've completed in your career for your various books and podcasts, which interview and with whom had the biggest impact on you personally? Come on. Welcome. Thank you. Um, Riverside, come on, man, <laughs> give it up. These people. No, I'm not, you conducted this interview. I didn't conduct this interview. I know, but with the audience, you know. <laughs> this is. <laughs> well, well, so one that was done with me, clearly, Larry. One that I did with someone else. What was the question? One he's done? Correct. One he has you know, done. I love how you're going out of your way to make this about you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get some love. I know how snitty you get, so I'm just trying to get, trying to get some Malcolm love. I ra- I'm actually rarely snitty. I am very well behaved. I, I, I occasionally wander outside the lines, but only yes. very occasionally. Yeah. My but your Twitter, snittiness is always entertaining, though, I have my, to say. My Twitter is like, it's like cats. Yeah. It's like, there's nothing, there's no harshness going on on my Twitter. Well, let me ask you this, because people kind of pounced on you a bit last year. Remember the whole uh, New Yorker thing? Uh, event happened. Oh, they didn't pounce. You know, well, they, it seemed like they were pouncing on you. you know. It's like my view of Twitter is there's like eight people uh-huh. who live, <laughs> I don't know where they live, like in the yeah. suburbs of Cleveland. Right. And they're very angry with their life. <laughs> and they go on a variety of yes. Twitter sites, uh-huh. whatever they are, every day, and just post lots of nasty things. But it's sure. not a lot, you know, we think because they're so prolific. Yeah. That there's a lot of them out there. I just, I think it's I don't eight think of it's them. allowed either. I agree. I think it's you. eight of them. It just, eight is a pretty good number. I like yeah, that number. Yeah. Uh, let, me ask, let me ask you this to, yeah. to back on that. Do you have a favorite book? I, I know your most recent one usually can be, feel like your favorite, but is there anyone that sticks out in your mind that you just really always kind of look at fondly, or, or do you just forget those once you're done? Um, well, there's, you know, the standard answer people give which I'm not going to give, but I'll tell you what the standard answer okay. is, which is, my books are like my children. Uh-huh. I like them all equally. I rarely visit them again, right? 
<laughs> Oops, I've told too much. <laughs> By the way, I, growing up, it was an article of faith that if parents had a favorite, they would never own up to it. So in, mm-hmm. when I was a kid, you would observe family, your own family and other families, mm-hmm. and it would be clear there was big differences among the siblings in sure. lovability. Mm-hmm. But no one, no one ever even raised the notion that parents might favor one over another. And then lately, I've realized that in the 21st century, uh-huh. apparently parents seem to be much less concerned yeah. about this. And I know people who openly yeah. will say, well, she's my favorite. Yeah. I okay. mean, when it's so obvious, what do are you they going to do? How many do you have? Do you have I have two kids. No. Do you have a favorite? No, I do not have a favorite. I don't. Come I don't on. Have a favorite. Come I on. I wouldn't lie to you. I don't have a favorite. Really? I would, I would tell you if I had a favorite. What, what? No, if one, if one of them was rotten, I would definitely have a favorite. What would they say? No, they, they, would, they would agree. They with would me. say? Yeah, absolutely. Dad's totally even handed. Completely. Now, I come from a family where there were some favorites, you know, and that was pretty obvious for a while, and sometimes that would change. You were not the life. favorite. No, I was never the That's favorite. why you're a comic. Although, I think I might be my mom's favorite now, but that's because I pay for everything. <laughs> <laughs> you are, that's a whole different story. A late surge in But the I rankings. know what you mean. But you there, like, <laughs> there's, there's definitely schisms that are called cause when they're favorites. But we're talking about books. Your books aren't going to be affected by being the favorite. Do I have a favorite? I'm just calling bullshit on your answer right now. Because <laughs> it's a book. We're talking well, about a book. You know, you like never... Blink is going to go, well, I mean, if I'm not the favorite. No, you mm-hmm. can't, you can't, your favorite can't be your first one. Uh-huh. Right? Like, the first one was written in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. There is nothing I thought or did or wore mm-hmm. in the late 90s that I would endorse today. Like, it's right. just not... No part of Malcolm in the late 90s is a good idea. Yeah. And I think all of us feel that way. Who, who, yeah. would stand next, who would stand behind their late 90s self in this day and age? Trump. Yeah. 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 That's about it. You, what were you doing in the late 90s? Um, I was doing a little show called The PJs. It was a little animated show with Eddie Murphy on television. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, would you stand behind your late 90s self? Completely. We had a crackhead on the show. Are you kidding me? Absolutely. Still hasn't been done on television. We actually had a line on the show. Well, gotta go. Crack don't smoke itself. Can't do it. You can't do that line today on TV. Can't do it. Cannot do it. I stand by my late 90s self. That's all I'm asking of you, Malcolm. That's all. Okay, should we, we could do this all night, you guys. But should we answer one more? One, one more for the room. One, one more. Do we got one more? One more, you guys? One, one more. So, uh, one more, uh, and then we'll wrap it up. How about a that? final question, uh, Malcolm. Um, what advice would you give? This actually was one of the questions that came in as a parent in here who teaches kindergarten, and her husband teaches high school. Okay. What is the best advice you would give them to give uh, a kindergarten student and a high school student? Advice in the realm of, what do you life, mean, just life advice? Anything. Do you have life advice for? <laughs> Are you sure this is a question for this show? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was our child psychology show last night, Larry, sorry. <laughs> kind of an odd question, but do, I do, have you, life do you give advice? advice to people? Are you asked to give advice at all? Or? Really, I don't think of my... Uh-huh. I don't think, when I think of my own experience, I don't know whether it lends sure. itself to, mm-hmm. um, 
I wouldn't, would I want someone to follow my career path? I don't think so. Mm. Um, but I advise, leave, a ma- I mean, I always think that you, if you're young and in America, you should leave America. I don't mean permanently. I don't mean leave it in anger. Go I mean, visit places. You should live somewhere else for a while. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, your appreciation for this country will grow if you go somewhere dysfunctional. Sure. Um, <laughs> and that's a very... No, because I think a lot of people are on... I'm, as, again, as an outsider. Um, and also, as a child... So I grew up in a... My mom is a Jamaican immigrant, and I grew up in the family of Jamaica... In the world of Jamaican immigrants in uh-huh. America and Canada. And there are many, 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 many Jamaican immigrants. And if you grew up in the world of Jamaican immigrants, they're all... They, they, they left Jamaica when Jamaica was at its craziness in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And that reference point in their head, in their mind, about how crazy things were in the 70s in Jamaica, meant they were always happy to be here. Mm. And no amount of craziness and dysfunction in America can possibly dislodge the notion of how crazy things were elsewhere. Yeah. And I, that's a really... You know, the, to talk to Americans today, you would think they were... That this country, you know, was on its last legs. It is, by the way, still just about the best place to live in the world, right? You can, one guy can't screw that up. And if, you have, if you've forgotten that, you should go somewhere that isn't working well yeah. and reacquaint yourself about what dysfunction really looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my, my advice would be buy a plane ticket, go somewhere that isn't working really well and get some healthy perspective in your own country. For this country. What a nice way to end. And go talk to strangers, how about that? Malcolm Gladwell, talking to strangers. Go buy the book, everybody. Thanks, Malcolm.